0: One other question I have is uh, the story on that cowboy hat behind you.
1: The bought What bite cowboy hat. <laughs> so basically, um, we went to Gretchen for uh, Class 1 a few years back, a good few years back. And uh, Johnny stole the cowboy hat from the DJ because they have a DJ in Track Center and <laughs> had it on the podium. And it kind of stuck. So Hoob and What bike got together, made something like one and a half thousand who bought like cowboy hats and we went to like london world cup and gave them out to all the crowd and stuff and then took them to all the races with us and just started wearing them on the podium because there's uci regulation that says you're not allowed headwear so we just thought oh <laughs> <fuck them." laughs>
0: hi everyone i'm andrew and i'm michael and this is the endurance innovation podcast
2: Hey everyone and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh we promised you some uh, some big names for guests, and uh here we are, we're delivering. Joining us for the second time uh on EI is uh UK cyclist, aerodynamicist, uh, an entrepreneur. Let's see, what else can I say about this guy? Uh all around, all around fun guy to talk to, Dan Bigham. And Dan's just coming off, as he told us in the pre-show, a couple weeks of uh, of uh, postseason recovery so he has hopefully had time to process some of the big things that have happened in his sporting life in the last uh well, i don't know six months uh it's been close to 12 months since you've been on the show dan and uh, uh first of all, i'm going to walk you welcome you back on the show and uh, i'm really looking forward to having this conversation about all the uh all the exploits in the Dan Bingham world. Dan, welcome back. <laughs> uh,
1: thanks for, for having me to both of you. It's uh, it's always fun to chat the nerdy stuff, like properly nerdy. I always say this to podcasters, <laughs> and then they'll ask like one question about Aero, and you're like, well, that, that wasn't quite tickling my pickle. So yeah, i probably properly love this, especially listening in to all the cool guests that you have on. So uh, yeah, thank you for having me back.
0: Yeah, we're definitely not afraid to take a deep dive with nerdy things. It's uh, It's something we're not ashamed of. Yeah.
2: So uh Dan, why don't we uh, why don't we start at the at the most recent uh things that have been going on um maybe with the uh the the British championships uh and then uh, and you know your your uh, experiences there. And then we'll go uh definitely want to talk about the hour record cuz that's been on the radar. Mm-hmm. Well, since you came on the show last last year, it was I think December of 2020 and you were talking about doing either going after either the worlds or the British. Uh, and then there's a few other things that we're going to dive into after that. But why don't why don't we start there? So how did the, how did the nationals go for you?
1: Pretty good uh, all round, to be honest. So the last nationals for me was 2019. We didn't have one last year, so, and that was oh, yeah fifth. It was an all right ride. Um, beaten by yeah Dowsett, John Archibald, Steve Cummings. Uh, Owen Dool. So, some big names, but I wanted to go and, well, try and win it. That's what everyone goes to, to race for, right? Right. And yeah, just, well, I say missed out. as was a good 30, I want to say 35 seconds off Ethan Hayter of Ineos uh, over about 40-ish K course. So, I was pretty close to the win. Second place is, yeah, pretty happy with it. Um, maybe not, i say maybe not my best course, but it probably actually was quite a good course. There's a big old climb in it three times. it's three laps. And uh, I'm not a climber, but it was one of those courses that rewards like confidence in in cornering, constants, in descending, and being able to pace an effort, which is probably more my forte, the sort of variable courses, the sporting courses. So, uh, yeah, I was super confident with it. I had um, good mate, ex-teammate, because I'm not in the same team anymore, Johnny Whale in the car. That's given me all manner of positive talk i don't know if you can say that he was i uh, had the camera bike on me and he's like this is awesome great content for the gram like be positive get that head down and just a really yeah good experience got it all out on the day but yeah better man beat me and uh, i think second is, is pretty sweet and uh, yeah some big names just behind me a lot of the pro conti world tour guys so uh, hopefully did
0: did myself justice yeah there's nothing wrong with that I'm I'm curious, what actually does go on in the radio? What kind of motivational talk do you get?
1: I think it tends to vary person to person. So I was on the radio for my partner, Joss. So I was in the team car mm-hmm. there and she's more about talking her around the course and, and what she should be doing when, whereas... For myself, I'm very aware of what I need to do power-wise at specific points, so I just want feedback on actually what I am doing that I can't see, so that that kind of perspective from the car, so am I rocking my shoulders, not holding a head position, my line isn't great, and then, yeah, a little bit of guiding yourself around the course, because if you're trying to hold a good aero position on a closed road, then you're probably not going to have a huge amount of forward vision. So mm-hmm. yeah, heads up if you're about to ride into a pothole or, or something along those lines, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it can go to like the absolute extreme of like screaming and everything else down the radio. So like Cole Sturgis, our DS, he was in the car as well, and he got a bit excited at points and stole the radio from Johnny and started <laughs> cheering me on. But uh, yeah, it, it does tend to vary uh, a lot of positive talk there in general, obviously thinking about the right kind of words to say, which is Johnny's forte. He's a psychologist by trade. So Hmm. knowing how to push those buttons and what to say and when, when to focus on being relaxed and when to focus on really getting the best out of somebody. So I think he was a, a really good asset in the car just to yeah, basically make sure I get it all out
0: that's it's interesting to get that perspective because i think it's something that's overlooked like you just assume okay there's a radio you get updates and don't think about the psychological aspect but definitely motivation especially when you're right near the end of the the course like that would be huge just to get that extra little push out of you
1: yeah and also understanding where you are in the race relative to others so you don't have to think about it so whether it's actually receiving a time check do you want a time check do you just want to be told whether you're in the race which can be <laughs> all you need to know, really. It's like, who cares if you're plus or minus five seconds as long as you know you're where you need to be kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I think it's just a really helpful thing to have. And I'm often surprised when athletes don't utilize it. It's a, a free tool. And, yeah, a lot of them are keen to just focus in on themselves and you and just be in their own headspace, which I guess is fair enough. It's, it's quite a personal thing. And having someone screaming down a headphone at you might not always be a positive thing, but um, if you can prepare properly and get the right person, then I don't see why you wouldn't use them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there is there
2: is a ton of individuality, kind of in my experience of in coaching, uh, that some people just do not want that. They they want to be left the fuck alone to do what they're doing. And I mean, <laughs> probably at, a, at lower levels of, of in the sport, right? Because there are there are, as you say, advantages to having that information. But the, you know, uh, we are all individual snowflakes.
1: Yeah, I saw an interesting paper, I think I was on Twitter just scrolling this morning when I was having my breakfast, about how rate of perceived exertion is higher when you have friends and family watching. Huh. So if you're going to go in a lab and do, I don't know, a max test or something like that, I should probably have read the paper a bit more thoroughly rather than a scan. But <laughs> uh, it's quite an interesting one. I guess that comes down to the type of person that you are, whether you're internally or externally motivated. But having, that could be, yeah, your family. So my dad was in the car watching you perform, it's it can add a lot of pressure. And it was the same in the hour record. Sometimes it can be very positive and sometimes it can be very negative. And it's making sure you control that interaction. So it's always beneficial and not, for example, my dad in a practice hour back in February screaming, come on, son, you're going to have to find something more. And I'm like, well, that's really <laughs> helpful because I'm obviously on the limit here.
2: <laughs> Thanks Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's interesting because I remember reading about, I think they were calling it the group, uh, the group effect or the audience effect. I forget what it was, but it was, um, uh, and it was, uh, it was, I think, in Dixon's book. Uh, How bad do you want it? I, I'd have to check on that, listeners, because I could be making that up. But um, it was performance enhancing. At least he found it to be performance enhancing to have an audience to be, to perform in front of uh, of other people. And I remember when when um, when COVID shut down. Uh, well, first COVID shut down everything, but then there were. Uh, there were sports that were played, but there were no crowds in the stands and the athletes reported it, you know, being at least from what I remember reading, being less motivated, being less invested in the in the activity. So it, I if you do find that that paper, Dan, flip it to me because I want to I want to see because this is it's fun to read, you know, contradictory research as well. You don't just want your biases confirmed all the time.
1: Yeah, and that, that kind of pressure as well, it, like for the hour record, is a big one because you're everyone's watching, right? You're going to go out there and say, I'm better than everybody else and I'm going to show you. And <laughs> <laughs> Whether the, the stands are empty or not, there's a camera up in the stands and you know there's a few thousand people behind that. And that definitely plays on your mind, not even just in the competition but the run-up to it. But some people thrive under pressure and some don't, and that's probably why different studies, depending on how they're structured, can get different results in that respect.
2: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, back to the, uh, the, the British uh, TT. Um, I, knowing you a little bit, I bet you uh, you went back and, and broke down and analyzed your, your ride after the fact. And listeners, Dan is nodding on, on camera here. Um, but uh, yeah, was there, is, was there anything that you or uh, any conclusions that you could draw that uh, could find you that 30 some odd seconds that, that kept you off gold?
1: Uh, Another 10 watts, (laughs) just in general, that'd be nice. Uh, There's nothing a bit more power can't do. Uh, Honestly, no, actually. So there wasn't, I didn't leave much on the corners. If anything, I took most of my time through corners and descents. uh, And on the flat sections, I was the quickest, bar anybody. It was pretty much just on the climb. Um, And to be honest, pretty much all in the last lap. I lost 25 seconds, I think, to, to Ethan Hayter in the last climb so we were four or five seconds off each other at the bottom and then yeah um that was that so yeah being a bit lighter maybe would have helped uh but then how much you trade off with power and arrow at the same time um i think at the end of the day he was just yeah the the better athlete i couldn't have gained much time anywhere else which is i guess you can be quite content with that when you you pull it apart like a yeah with a fine tooth comb Mm -hmm. and don't really say oh i break too much here or i didn't hold a good position there um yeah watching videos and pictures back and everything i did maybe a little bit in how i paced the ride i felt on the day that it was more flat pace, but actually when you look at the the numbers it was a steady decrement of like three or four watts per lap so i was something like 370 367 364 per lap which because, yeah, it's not te- terrible, but maybe flipping it the other way, you can dig a bigger hole, which, to again, talk about the hour record, was more about the pacing there, mm-hmm. being a big, strong negative split rather than like a positive with a slight decrement. Then you always hope that you have the gas at the back end, and I just didn't quite have it that day. I'd done better numbers in other races that year, but um, you can always say that, and who knows, with power meter variation and everything else, So it's just yeah you analyze on the day with that fixed amount of energy what you could have done but um yeah not not a huge amount I, I prepared really well for it i'd ridden the course a huge amount run all the numbers had a really solid pacing strategy knew what i was doing and where the gearing i'd run everything it was uh yeah properly all in for that but that was <laughs> the last race of my year so uh may as well get it all out
0: and see what i can do so the, the cornering and familiarity with the course, um, I think that's something that can't be underestimated because I know a friend of mine, Art Hare, who we've had on the show previously, um, just because he likes doing this kind of thing, he calculated the difference in power required to make up a better cornering speed. And it was substantial. Like, I think his calculation was over a 5K course with two bends, two 90 degree bends. And he had it basically like a good cornering athlete versus a poorly cornering athlete. So 0.2 Gs versus 0.7 Gs in the corner. Um, and it was like five or seven watts to make up the difference. So you lose a ton on corners, and it's it's not to be underestimated. So I think your familiarity with the course and the bike handling skills, um, even though TT riders are often, especially triathletes, are often. Criticized for yeah, not that, having don't any don't lump those two
2: categories together. <laughs> yeah, I think we're gonna, we're not going to make it. let's let's say triathletes. <laughs> triathletes,
0: yeah, are terrible at bike handling. Uh, and there's so much that's left behind. Uh, and there's different levels of TT riders. There's obviously some that are uh, World Tour riders who are. Probably quite good at bike handling, and others who may not have it, and the difference there can be substantial. And that could be, that could be maybe not in your case because you were prepared, but for a lot of people that could be the ten watts that was missing to take the win.
1: Yeah, I mean to to talk about my partner Joss's race at the national, she was second behind Anna Henderson. But Anna Henderson was a nigh on a minute ahead over. 30k 25 30k whatever it was 40 minutes of racing and uh that was pretty much entirely lost in corners and descents when you do the analysis and losing a minute in 40 minutes is massive you can't pull that back with power you just need what's that like another 20 watts or something it's hmm. like you just you're not going to easily find wow. 20 watts when you're a, a well-developed <laughs> athlete so it shows where the the low-hanging fruit is and yeah you, you run the numbers there's the fact that you're traveling slower through a corner there's the fact that you've got to then reaccelerate. Uh, It's just, yeah, you add it all up and it's, it's pretty scary, which makes you a bit more inspired to send those corners and uh, pretty much all of them I was doing on the, on the skis as well. There was one corner that was a high speed right hander uh, through a junction uh, but it went on to a, onto a bit of a drag, so I was fairly comfortable. I say fairly comfortable, wasn't very comfortable lap one because uh, I went through it on the skis at about 65K an hour and the cameraman there took Ooh. a deep inhalation. And I was like, oh, have I done something wrong here? We <laughs> kept it all right. It was all fine, and then you, you're okay going forward. But um, it's sometimes being confident that that's achievable and uh, and just going for it. And, yeah, it obviously helps as well. Then you're in the aero position for all of another let's say 10 seconds that's Mm -hmm. 10 seconds three laps that's 30 seconds that i'm not on the base bar and everyone else is and that's okay let's say 25 percent drag difference so they've had the 10 watts for 30 seconds of drag not a huge amount but it's something right
0: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah especially when it's when every every second counts in those races sometimes
0: and there's a good analogy that uh so this is a motorsports racing book but uh drive to win which is a favorite of mine but they, the, the author, Carol Smith, talks about uh, the fact that if you're faster in corners, it doesn't just make you faster in the corner, it makes you faster for the entire straight um, following the corner. So it's a huge, huge difference. And I think that's, I mean, with with a bike, you eventually get up to kind of your terminal velocity or your max speed, but that difference in time, you're you're gaining time on everyone else that entire time. So it could be another, like you said, 10, 15 seconds, 20 seconds before they've reaccelerated to your speed. So... Huge difference. It's And you've been riding been. at a lower power at that time
1: as well. Yeah, yeah. So many wins to cornering quick, which doesn't always make it easier though, because you come to a corner and at some point your brain is like, "Guy, you need to slow down." (laughs) You're like, "No, no, 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 no. We go through at this speed."
2: (laughs) Especially when you're tired, right? So I mean, totally uh, very different application. But um, back to I ran I ran a 65k trail race in which I was woefully underprepared for. But there came a point where my brain couldn't process the technical terrain because I was just due to fatigue. And I'm wondering if the same thing happens to you guys when you're you know when you're doing a technical corner and you've been you know all out flat out and you're coming to the end of the race like how do you still convince yourself that you have the you know (laughs) that you you can pull it off when you're when your brain is is tired from all the you know all the 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 foot on the gas time that it's
1: spent yeah i think a lot of that comes down to experience on the bike and it's why i always try and advocate to ride your tt bike as much as possible so you're doing like Mm. your long rides and you're four five six hours in you glycine like depleted, you're tired, but you used to riding the bike, you know how it's going to respond. And then you'll probably have the confidence, at least from a handling perspective, to do it when you are mentally fatigued and physically fatigued at the back end of the race. For me, mostly it's the motivation of, I know at the back end, if I'm struggling, then the only way I can do well in this race is by sending it. And you Hmm. you just make that mental decision of, I've just got to do it and hope you keep it upright. And uh, I think the epitome of that was back in 2019 at the Mixed Relay TTT World Champs in, in Harrogate. So it was such a variable course, like the most variable course I've ever raced a time trial bike round. There was blocks where you're riding at 20k an hour for three minutes up a Madberg and then points where you're doing 85k an hour on the skis (laughs) through a town centre and it was wet and there was junctions and everything. It It was bedlam but they're the kind of courses that reward the, the fast cornering. So yeah. it was having the confidence and the wherewithal to, to know that you need to continue railing corners even when you're, you're absolutely on the limit. And uh, I think it was probably more scary for John. He was our third man. So me and Harry are fairly confident in bike handling, TTs and, and town centre crits and that kind of thing. John less so, but he knew that he's got to get to the line so he's just got to follow us and he knows it's possible right if the guy ahead of you is doing it then from a physics perspective it's doable but um that doesn't always make it easy to do
0: and how much in your opinion does equipment choice make a difference so tire selection um because we often talk about rolling resistance with tires but uh very rarely at least for time trialists or for triathletes very rarely do you talk about cornering ability
1: yeah it's something i've seen a few more papers pop out like gg curves which are obviously pretty common in motorsport understanding like your performance envelope and how you're pushing that from a car's perspective so mm. and and then also how you are actually cornering so are you trail braking so you're always at the limit of the tires grip um which is interesting it's not really adopted in cycling uh, maybe it's just a harder thing to do especially with the fact that tires generate grip through camber thrust and slip as well as the fact you're banking over so roll angles introduce other issues but um i think equipment choice definitely does have an impact i reckon most athletes don't get anywhere near the limit of grip during time trials anyway in road racing i think they do but that comes down to confidence of the bike's handling which again comes down to riding more time on it however i think tire choice is the big one but getting confident in your selection of tires so you speak to plenty of time trialists or just people racing in general and they're like, Oh, this tire brand or that tire model is terrible in the wet or terrible on this road surface. And it might be the case, but I think it's more to do with the confidence, the fact they're not getting close to the limit of the envelope, because when Mm -hmm. you get to the limit, at least in a car, you slide on four wheels on a bike you don't and that's (laughs) why i've got bandages because i I found the limit of adhesion in the national road race and uh it was at about 60k an hour and ended up in a ditch um which wasn't ideal but um it's having the confidence to do that and get closer to the limit and i think that's what makes good bike handlers and their ability to perceive and to feel that and equipment obviously features into it but i don't think it's often the deciding factor
2: Hmm. especially probably for the the, the amateur set it's 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 it sounds like it's more in the in the skill level rather than the you can't blame can't blame your tires if you don't know how to corner
1: no but then also i guess the more skilled athletes are uh more progressive in their application of force so they're not going to hack at the bike going through a corner mm-hmm. that whole turning on a 50 pence piece uh which is like an analogy in the uk of where you're, you're going through the corner and you're not committed to a line you're always changing what you're doing and that's going to adds a lot of peak loads through a tire and the tire's mm-hmm. not going to like that. It's going to possibly go over the envelope and then recover. And that's when you have instability and that's when things go wrong. Whereas the top level guys, if they know how to get to the limit, but not go over it, they'll they'll commit to that line and stay on that line and not deviate because they know as soon as you start deviating, that's when things start going wrong because you introduce that (laughs) transience. And, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, Grip doesn't like that. An
0: interesting direction this has gone. I guess it's my (laughs) fault for asking these questions. but uh... (laughs) Who wants to talk about tire dynamics?
2: Yeah, well, that's that's a whole other a whole other episode or a whole other topic that we haven't we haven't yet explored. We actually, you know, sidebar, we've been looking for somebody to talk about well, rolling resistance primarily, someone who's a who's a good level expert. Maybe we'll uh, we'll offline that. Dan, you can you can recommend someone, or well, maybe you. want to I about someone. One day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the thing with tires is they're just not well understood, even in motorsport, yeah. right? like there's so much money thrown at the problem of understanding tyres. And in cycling, we're currently at this point of measuring hysteric losses. And then someone's been like, oh, but there's more losses in tyres. And I think that will steadily unravel itself over the next decade or so and head towards the direction that motorsport is in. But even, yeah, in motorsport, they're they're doing all manner of things with seven-post rigs and crazy tyre tests. And they're still not entirely sure really what goes on with tyres. So it's it's a weird old thing.
0: Well, I think car tyres are fairly well understood but motorcycle tires uh the camber thrust that you're talking about that's something that's still very much in the infancy of understanding and, and exploiting properly uh, and that's that's all that bikes use basically like that's how yeah. you generate your side force
1: maybe find somebody in MotoGP might be willing yeah. to talk about it so if <laughs> there's any not. listeners who are <laughs> like crossovers.
2: and then we have to figure out how to apply it to our skinnies yeah yeah um so let's talk about let's uh shift gears a little bit and talk about the the hour record um that uh happened a little bit earlier in the year um as i mentioned in the intro uh, folks we we had dan on in december and this was something that he it looked it sounded like he was pretty close to to pulling the trigger on and just waiting for the right conditions and the right set of circumstances uh, and it uh it finally happened what about a month ago you were in switzerland yeah this? uh 28 days ago four weeks 28 days ago. Day. okay yeah. yeah perfect yeah there you go um so yeah take us through it there's a there's a number of considerations a few questions i have uh, i have for you but uh give us the the bird's eye view before we you know drill down
1: sure so i think when we spoke last spoke i was keen to do it in a matter of weeks or months it was like let's go and uh covid continued to drag itself out and I guess I wasn't entirely sure it was definitely achievable. So it took multiple test runs. So last year I was doing, I did quite a few actually. So I did a full gas, fully censored run in February uh, where I had literally everything on me from the usual power, speed, no-show aero data, um, the OMO Biomech. Then I had core body temp. I had the actual Mm. core sensor as well as a pill, uh, muscle EMG. uh, I try to think what else we had. Loads of things just looking at what what the hell happens in that record just just see I what you goes a photo on of that of, of that, uh, of that I've test. Got a spreadsheet. Oh, yeah there's some photos going around they look a bit <laughs> dodgy though so there's one of um, getting emg sensors literally stuck onto my glutes but i've had to pull my skin suit down and bend over and someone's behind me and it looks like i'm getting a rectal thermometer inserted so <laughs> maybe let's not put that in the light of day yeah, but anyway fair enough, fair enough. so that was one test run where i learned a lot because it didn't go successfully, it was 53.3. I was on pace for a low 54 and then completely fell apart with 20 minutes to go. So there are a lot of things coming out from the measurements, really, of what we should do differently. And I don't want to give the game away because a lot of people are going for our records, especially in about (laughs) a few days' time. And they may (laughs) may take advantage of that. But uh, there will be a paper on some point with the learnings of that uh, going out there. But then we did another full gas run in... I think when it was July it was just the day after the Danish team suit team left to go to Tokyo so I was over in Denmark myself and Martin Toff Madsen and, and Kasper Volsack. literally said what should we do today oh let's go to the velodrome show do an doing record <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Toft did 30 minutes at I think it's 54.7 54.8 all look really comfortable but he just had his second jab so he was feeling a bit under the weather so uh, I thought well I'm keen to try and break that but I want to do an hour but I'll, I'll do it like a really strong negative split so I went out 53k an hour and just ramped it and ramped it but none of the guys were there like taking splits I said just leave me to it I just want to ride in my own head and not be told what's going on mm-hmm. and uh, then the last 10 minutes Casper comes up and he's giving me my splits and he's like five nine five eight five nine which is like 56 57k an hour and he's like, what is going on here? Why is Dan riding as fast at the back end? And uh, I think I learned a lot about my own physiology that day and the implementation of what we'd learned earlier in the year. So um, then basic plan was to have this block at the end of the year where I do the World's Time Trial Champs uh, individual and team. And then, like she said, it's Tour Britain, Worlds, our record, nationals. Basically, because everything else that was going in the year meant I couldn't really race to the level I wanted to. So let's just try and run it in one big block and do all I could. And, um, yeah, time at the same time as Joss, my partner doing the women's world hour records. So she did it one day. I did it the following day and, uh, yeah, pretty much we decided a few weeks out. It's definitely a goer and, um, away we go. So we got to Grenchen in Switzerland about a week out. So Joss was coming a few days later. She was still at the world's racing the road race and, um, pretty much just everything went really well. <laughs> There's not, um, too much to say that went wrong i was in a good headspace form was good conditions were really quick and i dialed in all my equipment and we can obviously have a, a deep dive into what that really means mm-hmm. and uh just paced it exactly as i wanted to and kept my head throughout kept my my form throughout it only really properly bit the last five minutes or so was when i was struggling but then even then i only slowed down to about 54k an hour so uh yeah managed to put on a 197 meters over bradley wiggins so it was only the the british hour record not the world hour record which basically is a case of one financial costs uh, and two i can't break the world record at sea level right now <laughs> as proven by that so maybe that's the right choice but um that'll come in the future nice
2: okay the lot to unpack there andrew do you want to start i've got a bunch of questions well
0: i'll let you start
2: okay fair enough okay so um Uh, just just so that listeners have some context, uh, the the financial constraints that you mentioned, just give us an idea of what, what that's all about. And, you know, other than not being not being there yet physically or, you know, equipment wise, whatever the case may be, what's the what's the other barrier? okay so to
1: put a world hour record on you have to be on the uci registered testing pool that's one mm-hmm. of the requirements It's about eight thousand pounds if you're pro conti or world tour you're already on it uh if you're not then you basically have to ask to go on it and pay for the pleasure uh there are other people who go on it ngbs etc and i've been pushing to try and get myself on it for a few years just because i'm racing at that level right We're definitely pro anti it makes sense to be on that even though it's a bit of an athlete overhead it just means that my life becomes a lot easier when these opportunities come around but yeah obviously I've got to pay for that now because they don't want to pay for it out of their pocket instead uh, which is uh, somewhat understandable Uh, that's one you then actually just got to organize the damn thing it's um, a logistical nightmare so mine cost scary number i'd have to run it but it's four five six thousand just in track hire and commissaires and they're like quite a low level one when you go and do the, the actual official one you have to have TSO branding you have to have a certain level of commissaires oh. and race officials and anti-doping on the day and the live stream and all the equipment sorting the fact you have to have two matching bikes and by the time you, you factor all in you, you're talking somewhere in the region twenty five thousand, thirty thousand pounds to go and hmm. put a record on and you can spend a lot more and people do like uh i think joss's i don't know the exact figure was probably two three times that um with wow. what they put on um so they went big on like eurosport and everything else which is it's fair enough like it's a marketing piece right that's what yeah it's what a big it deal is. yeah and uh i think campan arts was 100k maybe somewhere in that region oh, holy moly yeah, so it's, people say, "Oh, but you've probably got eight grand in the bank," and like, "Oh, yeah, I could spend my house deposit if I wanted to. That's part of it. Great, but what what have we got to show for it?" And um yeah, yeah and that- if you
2: miss right, like you spend a hundred thousand and you don't get there, like, oh, yeah. that's that's uh, that's that's a little bit of pressure there too.
1: Yeah, it's scary, and day, it is a marketing thing. So if someone's keen to use it as a marketing asset for their business, then. Mm-hmm then let's talk and that can be a thing going forward because yeah i'm keen to have a go at the world hour record next year it it looks possible at sea level and it's definitely possible at altitude Mm -hmm. because campaner where did where did campaner set his so he did it at mexico Aguascalientes, so 1850
0: meters Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. that's reasonably thin air
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's quicker you run the numbers and whichever way you cut it it's a faster location to be at
2: yeah, I think last time you were on we we chatted a little bit about that. So, my uh, my second question is on execution. I was just uh just refreshing my memory reading about the uh the race itself and you had a a pretty solid negative split um on the on the day. And so, uh, you know, my my understanding uh, very, admittedly at a very kind of basic level is Um, For an event like this, you know, you want fairly even pacing. So what's the strategy behind a negative split? Is it individual? Is it just something that has to do with your psychology? Or was there was there more physiology uh, behind it?
1: Physiology and psychology. So you look at the physics; it definitely makes sense to be constant pace, so that you're not mm-hmm. having to travel faster because obviously air drag is cubic to velocity. So it makes sense to be flat paced and never go faster than you need to. However, that also means that you're doing a lot of work early on. So biomechanically, you become less efficient at the back end. Your thermal tolerance varies person to person, but if you're sure. sitting at red line core body temp, then that becomes an issue. Uh, and also from a f- mental perspective, I don't enjoy that flat paced effort into sort of death effectively of just dragging it <laughs> out in the last yep. <laughs> 10, 15, 20 minutes of holding pace. Um, yeah. never fun. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you've got it the other way, that kind of ramped effort, that chasing of the record, mm. then it was much more enjoyable and easy to sort of compartmentalize because the first half an hour basically was right at 320, 330 watts like pretty chilled and then get to half an hour and start figuring out what I've got. And (laughs) I got to halfway and was literally feeling so cruisy. I'd, I'd had splits in my mind for every five minute block. So I knew, the split number to hit and also how far behind wiggins are planning to be which is basically by the halfway be 27 seconds behind okay which a lot of people were scared at and i didn't tell everybody my plan uh, i didn't tell my mum; she was in track center losing her mind <laughs> 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 but uh i knew it was doable because i'd done it in training i'd uh, yeah. Um. Back in in July when I'd done that negative split, I was fifty four point seven then. So I knew it, it's achievable. Nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, it did make an interesting pacing one because the back end I've then got to ride at fifty six k an hour, basically fifty five point five to fifty six, uh, which is a yeah. It's it used to be my individual pursuit speed which mm. is mad thinking back what uh what yes. i did for this is what i would do for 4k four year four or five years ago um so it just shows the progression both on the physiology and also on the on the aero and equipment side um but it was just having the confidence to to chase the record back and even people who knew me pretty well like my teammate john old old teammate john archibald when i told him the plan he's like i mean it makes sense but that's that's scary to be that far behind and, and know that you can pull it back and does it give you
2: a lot of confidence leading into, you know, the, the, the inevitable uh, world record attempt that you have, you know, that you can ride the back half of this at, like easily world
1: breaking velocity yeah it definitely helps uh it's, i still know in my head i need basically seven watts to match camping arts at sea level and then mm-hmm. you start scratching your head where do i find seven watts from because i thought I was pretty, <laughs> <laughs> if i could find seven watts i would have had it for the record uh yeah. there and then but um there's always opportunities things keep moving forward there's things that i couldn't or couldn't afford to or just straight up couldn't access uh so i think there's a bit to be had or just go to altitude, and you find more than that anyway in the in the net gain, and it's it's doable there. But I, I'm quite tempted by trying to bring it to sea level, just hmm. to see. Although it's a risky thing, but um, I think it's it's quite a cool thing, and maybe other people try at sea level then rather than this constant race to go to altitude.
0: So psychologically speaking, um, I know some people prefer to lead or to follow or to be chasing, basically instead of um, following necessarily. But uh, did you find it motivating to have that? that 27-second deficit to Wiggins. Yeah, the carrot
1: is big yeah. in my head. That, that's how I've always been motivated to have somebody to chase and compete against and not be chased. I always... I guess find motivation for being that kind of underdog or whatever you want to call it and uh, maybe that's because most of the time I have been and it's nice to kind of prove people wrong and to break that into like an hour record of being like halfway down and everyone's doubting you and you're like yeah but I feel mint this is going to be great this back half and um, <laughs> I think that helped on the mental side because you've got to have belief you've got to have belief that you can do it and in those last 10 minutes if if you're absolutely suffering and you're on the record then it's hard whereas if you can be like well i'm feeling good everything's going in the right direction i've just got to hold this pace," then it's uh i think it's mentally an easier thing to do i mean don't get me wrong the last three or four minutes were absolutely horrific everything started falling apart from <laughs> a line and position perspective but i was still riding above record pace until probably the last two or three laps so i was always putting time in the bank especially when i broke even with wiggins that was like a big moment in my head because it hadn't bitten by that point. And I'm like, I'm where Wiggins was at this point. I can just keep getting better. And yeah, it was um, a nice way to ride it. Definitely.
0: And you mentioned as well, uh, the first half hour, you said three 330 walks. Was that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so comparing this back, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know when Lionel Sanders did the Canadian hour record, um, I think he was in the high three hundreds from what I've heard somewhere from what people had estimated. And uh, did he? Did he was... ever publish? Did he ever
2: his numbers? I don't. I don't know that he Maybe ever it did. it was just hearsay.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I could be wrong on this, but uh, I know he's not the most aerodynamic person. But if he re- if he rode two kilometers an hour slower, two to three kilometers an hour slower, and is putting out another thirty watts uh that speaks to the impact of aerodynamics there
1: (laughs) yeah the aero stuff helps a bit so power wise i think my average is 355 i didn't run a power meter however i did a lot of longer runs in some the same condition same kit etc in advance and uh basically the splits that i did were well it gave me a cda of 0.160 riding that position on the track so i think that kind of falls in line with everything else. I could have been 162, I could have been 158, but that's basically somewhere between 350 and 360 watts. So I'm a good way less than Sanders was. I'm a good way less than pretty much everybody beforehand, whether that's Rowan Dennis or, or yeah, Bradley Wiggins. I'm definitely not a 400 watt plus guy, um, <laughs> as much as I'd love to be. <laughs> but, yeah, you got you to gotta find it somewhere else, right? Yeah. If
0: you're a 400 watt guy, I don't think you'd be doing a 0.16 CDA. So that's mm. that's kind of the trade-off. Uh, but say just hypothetically speaking, if you weren't confined by UCI regulations, what do you think you could hit for CDA?
2: Oh, that's a good question.
0: Ooh. If you could ride, if you could ride
2: any bike you wanted to, yeah, I mean, aside from it being a recumbent, like let's keep it, you know, let's keep it on, uh, on, a, on, a, on a, on a bicycle, a conventional bicycle.
1: Uh, yeah. No fed recumbents and hitting hundred K an hour, because I think that pretty yeah, that's pretty much true. what they do. They're somewhere in that region because the CDAs are ridiculous. Um, what much more is there to gain? I think there's probably a few little things that I'd like to do differently, mostly in bike design. Like I'm, I'm really interested in the hope bike design and how that functions, and yeah. I think it's an interesting concept. And what they've done is is pretty cool, which is effectively just a splitter plate behind your leg, and it just plays around with the vortices there. And yeah, I'm quite interested mm-hmm. in that. Uh, a few things around Q factor, I think you could probably play around with, but aren't really limited so much by the UCI, but more about just the pure physics of how do you fit a bike together with a crank set and a two chainstays <laughs> and a wheel in between that you, yeah and t- until you go back to the Baldman era of what they did with um having like single sided chainstays and offset wheels and all that kind of stuff then it's it's hard to kind of get much narrower than where we are now um but genuinely i don't think there's a huge amount more i would probably try the superman position or the egg position and see what that works out but neither of them i can do within uci legality so i can't really uh can't really test it now. I did play around with pushing the rules a little bit there to see how close I could get to a Superman within the rules. But yeah, it wasn't as it wasn't as big as I'd hoped, really. I was like, this is gonna be the silver bullet. Everyone's gonna like mind's will explode at what we did to achieve it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so there's not really anything there. There's a little bit, but it wasn't really worth the hassle of of going through all the, the UCI stuff and and how unstable the position was as well. Um, I was more comfortable and more stable in a UCI mm. legal position. So yeah, uh, as much as everyone wants to be like, the UCI are terrible. The rules are so limiting of performance. I think you can do a lot within them. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, you know, down
2: to 0.16, like, that's not ideal. You know, I don't know. I don't know any triathletes riding that, be, even though they don't have uh, UCI restrictions and they can do pretty much whatever they want.
1: Yeah, but then they've got a load of other things to deal with. They've got to run off the bike. That's, that's right, probably, yeah. They're hopping out of the water, soaking wet, and putting on a ultra-fast skin suit and calf guards and everything else. Probably not ideal. And hydration <laughs> yeah. and nutrition. So there's a few caveats, but I, I do it's think true. there's still low-hanging fruit in the triathlon world that – hasn't yet been picked but then people like uh magnus ditloo are are showing that you can get really arrow even as a massive Mm. guy like he's big and he's he's arrow and he's going fast and will probably continue to get quicker as well with the approach he's taking
2: yeah we we had him and uh and martin on the show a little bit after you and and uh yeah there's there that's that's kind of my uh my not the model for what i'm trying to accomplish but sort of the you know the, the guiding light for us just he's the he's the case in point that it's possible to get a lot faster and that that even the top end triathletes the, the folks that are winning races they're not there's still a lot of things that they can improve it's not like in you know in in track or time trial where you guys have picked all the all the easy ones and uh, and you're working on mar- very marginal gains there's a lot to be gained i think still
1: yeah there is and uh, i've been doing a little bit of work with a few triathletes um of late Uh, names i can't name but anyway (laughs) they uh they're definitely higher cda values than i would have thought if they were at the level they're at which is quite a good thing right if you're competing and winning or podiuming at ironman world champs and your cda is not that great then it's like well what happens when it does become awesome then uh yeah, you'd make a big step forward. But unfortunately the penny's dropping with everybody right now and it's it's going to be the arms race that track racing has mm-hmm. had for the last four or five years and it, it will move into every other discipline. And thankfully triathletes are really open to these things, whereas time trial, at least at the world tour level, less so. They question and push back a little bit and there's a bit of old school dogma in there, whereas everyone in triathlon just has this super open progressive mindset of like, if it's quicker, it's quicker. I don't care if I look stupid or or what, just give me the gains. And I like that. <laughs> put, put, put the cap sleeves on me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think there's a few other things on on the, like the hour record stuff. Just to kind of go back to that that mm-hmm. we played about with to just poke and prod and see what was sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much what the last 12, or 18 months have been just fine little tuning. And there's no silver bullet. Annoyingly, and you search and search and search, and it is the small yet significant improvements accumulating them that whole marginal gains dogma yep. <laughs> um yeah, well, thought, it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> for that event it makes a
2: ton of sense right because you are you are already so so heavily optimized yeah
1: yeah well one percent drag is what four, nearly four watts and that's like 200 meters so one percent mm. got me it got yeah me the that's
2: huge so what's the what's the plan for the future now you're saying that with uh, hopefully with covid you know at least with covid travel restrictions and and uh um, and those things ho- relaxing in the in the in the near future hopefully what's the plan for um for future attempts
1: so we've actually got a meeting next week me and the my support crew i guess Johnny Meddy and Tipper and uh, just went through what we think the next step should be but in my head it's I should go in it sometime june july august time next year okay and uh, so basically get on the registered testing pool and get planning towards doing that and the coin flip is sea level or altitude and then that determines what we do next like are we focusing on finding those half a percenters or are we focusing on optimizing at altitude and and all the things that go with that and then uh yeah just crack on down that project again i think learning a lot from what we've previously done because you finish and you're like, I think that was perfect. But then yeah, when you do an al- analyze, there's always little things that you probably could have done different, better, or just, just tried, just try something different and having the opportunity to go and do a few more practice hours would be, uh, would probably learn a whole lot more. So mm-hmm. yeah, have a go at the world hour record. Don't know where yet. It could be a whole, whole lot further if, if is successful in the, in the next few days, although that might be in the past by the time it comes around this well, why this comes out.
0: So I am probably speaking for a lot of our listeners, but I am very excited to see when your your paper comes out about all your all your secrets and all the. Uh, that was exactly <laughs> what I was about to say, Andrew. One
1: hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, there was a. <clears throat> there is plenty I can still talk about. A lot of it was like the the heat adaptations and what the optimal temperature and conditions are for an hour record, and uh, I think that historically has been push too high like wiggins was at like 30 31 degrees celsius and if you've ever tried riding in that for a sustained amount of time it's not fun yeah it's really not fun and okay it adds up each degree celsius is about one watt so about 50 meters so he was six degrees hotter than me so he had a 300 meter benefit from temperature which is six watts in power so Mm -hmm. can i produce six watts more being six degrees cooler Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the kind of trade-off of figuring that kind of stuff out, and then obviously doing all the the training in a in a heat tent. So uh, it's a actually it's an altitude tent, but I'm just using it as a heat tent because <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> they get warm and sweaty pretty quickly. Um, so that was one, yeah. And then the biomechanical side and optimizing cadence uh, accordingly was yeah quite an interesting one. But I don't think anything was um, mind blowing in that respect. I think it was just if you were fairly intelligent person but without all the the old school dogma that comes in cycling and the baggage you would probably come to a much much the same conclusion that we did and it just had a bit of additional data to kind of inform those decisions uh, and again i just think people who've been attempting it over the past five six seven years that the rules have been about probably just were informed by people who had a history in the sport and did things the way they've always done them <laughs> there's too much inertia sometimes i i, I agree
0: I have one final question that I want to to look into here. But what was your cadence? Uh
1: 96, which is actually slightly higher than we wanted, but um yeah. In the end with wheel size, so that uh basically I had a, my other wheel set until I switched to fast forward was just over it's a percent and a bit bigger, which meant oh, my cadence no. was a bit lower. So when I changed mm-hmm. wheels, it was even though the tire was the same, the circumference became measurably smaller and my cadence went up one and a bit interesting so
0: the reason i ask is uh when again lionel sanders did his hour record he's coming from a triathlon background so he's used to much much lower cadences than track cyclists and i think he did 89 89 or 90 was his cadence somewhere Mm -hmm. around there um which was very very unusual for an hour record attempt so it's it's interesting to see it come down because i can't remember what some of the numbers have been in the past but in like the 110s um, really high cadence for normal cyclists.
1: Yeah, um, that's pretty much what they've always been. Yeah, 105, 110. I had a good chat with Claudio Imhoff, who's uh, a Swiss pursuiter. So he was based at and he was really helpful throughout the whole prep for the hour. But um, he did a, an hour last year and I think... Yeah, he was 110, 115 RPM, and I was just oh, wow. like, mine was exploding. <laughs> my partner, Josh, she was at 90, 91, um, totally fine with that. The, the issue with me and my gearing was also that I'm progressing from 53k an hour to 56, which yeah. is quite a difference. So you've got to be able to tolerate the cadence at 53 and also at 56. So... I time trial normally 91, 92, 93, so that's probably more where I was happy to be, um, but I needed both ends of the extreme covered off, mm-hmm. which is another caveat of the pacing that I took.
0: So on that note, actually, um, there was a heat study. We've, we've mentioned it a couple of times in the, the podcast in the past, but a, a thermal study that I was doing um, a couple of years ago, and what we noticed is as the core body temperature went up, the self-selected cadence also went up. So people preferred to spin faster. Um, now this was at a fixed wattage, so it was reduced leg force, but, uh, people did tend to select a, um, a faster cadence to, um, hmm. th- to compensate, I guess, for the extra heat.
1: I wonder what the logic is in that.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite, quite
1: interesting.
2: True. You mentioned that before, Andrew, and I still, it still doesn't quite make sense to me, but you know, I, am not, yeah, the, the results are what they are. I was just trying to figure out what the, uh, with the back
1: with the background reason for yeah, it. Is. Yeah. The mechanism. I think once you can understand that then you can use it to your advantage, right?
0: Yeah, Until there totally. it's just
1: a, a data piece. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's it's noticed but not understood.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, awesome. Let's, uh, let's move on, Dan. And uh, I want to uh, say thank you for, uh, for, for you sending me uh, a pre-print, preprint of your book, which uh, came out earlier this year. And that is uh, Start at the End. And the, uh, the, the subtitle was How Reverse Engineering Can Lead to Success. And uh, I actually had a, a lot of fun reading it and uh, surprised myself a little bit. Because usually, um, you know, I find I, I almost exclusively read fiction because there's just so much nonfiction in my life. That I, I I have to be really motivated to read a nonfiction book, even about a, a subject that I that I quite enjoy. And this was a, a really kind of a you know a, a fun and easy and enjoyable read. And uh, maybe because it didn't get too much into the weeds. And uh, I've actually read criticism of the book saying that it didn't get into the weeds enough. But for me, this was for me, this was a win. For me, it was it was more of like um, a multidisciplinary approach to uh, or a multidisciplinary discussion of of what your maybe your career path has been like and what your findings through um, uh, through cycling and through innovation and engineering have been like.
1: And uh, I do not hesitate to recommend it. It was a great read thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's uh it's been fun to see responses from different people and what they thought it should have been or could have been or would have been. And uh, uh yeah, people have taken both ends of the extreme. You didn't tell us enough of the nerdy stuff through to like the other end of it of like, I just wanted to hear all the fun stuff that you did like at the yeah. team house when you're getting broken into or whatever. So it was trying to yeah, strike that balance and not just make it a chronology of everything we did of we went to this race and that race and the other race and Basically, be an autobiography. I wanted it to at least give some insight into everything we did and be actionable to people because I give a lot of advice generally, either through my business or just to people who ask or family and friends. And I think being able to put that into black and white and say, right, I could sit and talk about all this, but genuinely just have a read of this and come back to me with your thoughts because. Hopefully it kind of explains the concepts that we went through and how we would tackle problems. And I don't think it's anything brand new. I think a lot of people have taken the exact same approach, but hopefully it just gives um, a case study for why that approach is or can be successful and what those steps should look like if you're trying to tackle any event really. It obviously applies to sport or business. It's, I think, fairly applicable across most things, I hope anyway.
2: Yeah. And it kind of in the time it was when, when I was reading it and I read it when you sent it to me, um, which was some months ago, but, uh, when I was reading it, it was, it was definitely speaking to me because, you know, obviously I'm not a, a professional cyclist, but Andrew and I were developing a business. We were working on some innovative solutions. And even though maybe the, the specifics were different from what you, were you described and what we were working through, but there, it definitely spoke to me from that perspective. It was, it was, you know, Pro- the problems were at least structurally similar, even if they weren't, you know, similar in in the minute detail. So it was uh, it was useful, and it was it was fun to read. It was kind of like if I drew. Uh, at that point in my life, a Venn diagram of things I was interested in, like, you know, cycling and aerodynamics and, and uh, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial pursuits and innovation. They were kind of like, you, you sort of hit the bullseye. I mean, that's that's an N equals one description for me, but uh, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a totally a worthwhile read.
0: Well, I think the, uh, the other fact, the other evidence is that um, if you get criticisms from both ends of the spectrum, uh, then that's really an indication that you've hit the mark. So that's, that's, if anything, a compliment.
1: I think that's more reflection on the editor, understanding what people actually want to read. Because don't get me wrong, I was sitting in some meetings like, it needs more spreadsheets. There should be more spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they pulled me a bit back uh, into the center of that. For me, it was actually just a really helpful thing to do in general, because I don't think anybody really reflects back on what they do anywhere near enough. And Agreed. just taking it as an opportunity in COVID to go, well, actually, what well, yeah, what did we do and how did we do it and why did we do it? And ask those questions of friends and family and people we've been involved with and get their perspective on it. And I think it's given me a lot of motivation and direction going forward just to kind of summarize what we did historically. Uh, just, uh, yeah, it was a nice opportunity and um, a fun thing to do, I guess. Not many people go out and write a book, but I think COVID was as good an opportunity as any to to go for it.
0: Lots of people were definitely learning new things about themselves during COVID, I think.
1: (laughs) It was a a weird old time, that's for sure. But uh, equally, it's a good time to crack on and start new things. It's that you don't, I say you don't have these opportunities very often. It's the first time I think we've ever had a pandemic and presented these opportunities. So who knows what's going to come out of it. But I'm pretty sure innovation and the change of a lot of things will be quite normal going forward the the whole new normal but what is new normal in every single environment every walk of life business etc and um yeah i think it's it's a good chance for people to just pick a project whether it's sport related business related or just could be just renovating your house and just crack on and and use that kind of approach towards it and i've done the same thing i've used covid as a chance to to pick a few new new goals and just break them down and and then yeah sort of build a plan around it and figure out what tools and assets i've got around me i can utilize and it all it all changes it always does really quickly like what you have a few years ago when you're a little kid as a startup team is very different to what you have when you start working with like some of the bigger federations and teams and businesses Mm -hmm. and it always presents new opportunities and just taking stock of that and, and using them to the best of their ability rather than how you've always used them
2: yeah well, speaking of innovations um we we spoke uh, a, a bit uh about the way that you conduct your testing last time. we were on the show like I said December of last year so as- between now and then in this time that you've had to to think about these things and uh, and improve them potentially what is what has changed so from let's specifically talk about aero testing um or maybe you know you can extend it to physiological testing too if you want to talk about that stuff what have you what are you
1: doing now that you weren't doing uh what eleven months ago <laughs> Uh, Lots of little things. So there was a big project in DCU, Denmark, uh, the Federation there to basically figure out what test systems we should use post-Tokyo towards Paris, that we wanted to kind of streamline our team pursuit analysis, streamline our error testing, and have it so that it was a bit more plug and play for people to, to use, but also that we could create, a, well, everything from a, a database of performance and all the metrics that go with that. And, uh, through to, yeah, just having like mad star mechanic, be able to, to rock up at the track one day and just crank, crank the handle on the error testing. Because I think that whole, test count was a big limiting factor and having either me there or Casper or Martin as much as the three of us still presents a, a limiting factor so yeah we've been out testing everything uh, pretty much any sensor you can name we've probably had our hands on it or at least spoken with them quite a bit um, which has been really quite interesting to see what the lay of the land is so I've obviously had a, a history with no show and a really good relationship with them and continue to have a really good relationship but I think it's always good to see what else is on offer and what they're doing and, and whether there is benefit in moving across or Doing something different. And uh yeah, there's been some really interesting insights. So we had like um Aero were over at the at Flanders, the World Championships, and had a sensor on there for my recce run for the individual time trial. And they were providing some pretty cool insights into what the likely wind direction was going to be on race day and how that should affect pacing and position hmm. and that kind of thing, which is pretty nifty. And they're a cool bunch of guys. Uh, I've done quite a bit uh, with AeroTune as well with Sebastian and yep i I really like the guy he's he he and both yeah he and he and, Dior and Kafka both are just some of my favorite people to talk to I totally agree with you yeah so just playing about with that system and that is probably what we really wanted just a system that's nigh on plug and play like basically a garmin. And a phone and away you go and yeah um, <laughs> it's, it's really sweet and it was pierre uh who is also obviously a guest on the show pierre back yeah. he uh he introduced us and yeah it's been just a fun thing to play around with and have like live data transmission during tests and things is is pretty sweet and he's been really open to developing the software and getting it a bit bit more optimized i think around what we would like um so mm-hmm. yeah that, that's been pretty sweet uh, beyond that just doing a lot more field testing in general toft martin toft madison has pushed me down that route oh, pushed me just um he's been doing loads and you see the gains he makes and it's like i want a bit of that pie yeah so uh, <laughs> um he's another extreme like he aero tests three four five times a week i'm oh, pretty wow. sure it's like every training session like if he's going to do 150k ride it's an aero test and he'll show you <laughs> the data immediately after <laughs> he is <laughs> unbelievable nice. and th- that's why he's like the most area guy i've ever met there's no no other reason behind it other than he bloody loves it and um yeah so that's been quite a fun one to try and understand outdoor testing because it's such a much more complex beast than indoor where your angles and things okay you've got cornering flow and tire loads and stuff like that in the banking to deal with but
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah everything's a lot more stable you're outside in transients becomes a huge thing road surface elevation measurement like okay I, I knew there were problems and i've experienced them beforehand but when you yeah. really start wanting to do testing out on an open road you start to appreciate how frustrating they can be and uh that no one seems to have quite cracked it i would say which is a nice opportunity, but no one I'd say has got it perfect. There's always errors, but that's just unfortunately measuring elevation is like a big issue. Like, how do you do it well? Barometric, okay, it gives you a good idea, but then there's drift because obviously barometric pressure varies with weather and everything else. And then GPS, not perfect, especially in elevation. That's pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Tying them together, add an IMU in, but IMU's drift. So, what sensor's correcting for what sensor and how it <laughs> goes? So, it's. yeah. It's just been a a nice fun project, really, to just crack on and play with lots of different sensors and um, see what's see what's good and what's not.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you caught our chat with uh, with Mark Graveline, the most the most recent one and the the sensor he's developing and he's trying to solve that problem. That's one of the one of his marquee problems to solve the one you just described with elevation and sensors, correcting sensors. And, you know, he's got a he's got. Uh, he's developing a system where it is uh, an IMU uh, correcting the barometric altimeter and the altimeter correcting the IMU. So they're kind of working to working in tandem
1: to uh, sort each other up. I think that's probably the way to go about it's multiple sensors and um, I'm trying to think was it Robert Chung he even talked about carouseling. So if you for example, IMUs drift, but if you have a, an IMG with an IMU with a constant input, then you know exactly how much you're drifting by because you're constantly inputting something. So you might, for example, have an IMU spinning around at a constant rotational rate, and then hmm. you know what an input is, so you know when it drifts how much to correctly drift by. Interesting. Maybe one to, to mention too. I saw him talking about it. I think it was on Twitter or something. But um it, it comes up with all these great ideas. Um whether anybody actually takes them because yeah, taking IMU and sticking it on a motor and spinning it inside a sensor <laughs> is probably a bit harder than it sounds. <laughs> um but it's nice to see these different ideas to the to the problem to solving the problem than um just taking a barometer and going, That'll do because yeah, that'll do will never do. do. No. Yeah. <laughs> Not when you but need this really, kind of the- precision.
0: The really interesting thing is seeing how people seem to work together on this, where even though there's people competing and different groups competing, like generally speaking, I think they're all working towards a common goal and everyone's pretty collaborative with the, within the industry.
1: Yeah, and then you've got people like Body Rocket as well, who come from a lot of, there's a lot in that kind of um, domain of basically putting a, a some sort of airspeed measurement device and barometer on the bike and tie in a speed sensor and a power meter and away you go. And they've just come in from left field and gone, nah bin the power meter off we're going to measure forces at the stem at the crank and at the saddle and Hmm. then suddenly you've got a lot more look into that black box and I've, i've had some really good conversations with with the guys at body rocket with eric and um they open up the lid a little bit further than everybody else does right now because instead of just saying faster slower suddenly you've got okay faster slower but the uh rotational torque on the extensions increased on this specific run or your saddle pressure Mm. was more consistent or the rocking torque on the saddle because yeah you've got three axis forces and torques at each point and you can start to understand a bit more about what's going on under the hood and why something might be quicker which is obviously more insightful and you can then push in a direction because you understand rather than this was quicker this was slower and then scratching your head for a little bit and it's quite an interesting one for that but I'm still holding my breath for an, an actual one to play around in the real world and see the benefit.
0: That kind of takes me back to the concept of the saddle pressure mapping with the uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but- uh, I never... think that's great. That's
2: it's as close as we're going to get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: but if you, if you have that live saddle pressure mapping, like that gets you, it's more than just the forces on the saddle, but it's the actual position that you're riding on the saddle and how you're keeping your body and holding your body. And even if you're to integrate the forces over or the, the pressure over the area, um, it gives you kind of a total force, which you can then use to correlate with the, um, the other forces, because essentially you can treat your body as a free body diagram, which is getting into the weeds <laughs> for engineering, but uh, you can look at uh, the balance of different forces. So what's keeping you from falling, right? What's keeping you from hitting the pavement and it's the force on the saddle, the force on your elbows and your hands and your feet. And when you add all those up, that uh, that force has to balance or else you're accelerating somewhere. So says Newton.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how different people are approaching that, what areas to look at, what's important and what's not. And I think it, it'd be a fun one to just tie all these sensors together and just measure lots of stuff and then try and figure <laughs> out what, what correlates, what doesn't. But like, oh, that sounds that like a sense. complex problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Imagine the data set. It would be... <laughs> it'd be unreal but um you can start to do cool stuff and like um the other one with body rocket is they have crank position really really accurately and then you tie that in with say like muscle emg sensors then suddenly you could say well this muscle's firing at this position and this is the the three axis force is being applied at the pedal so it's probably this Mm -hmm. muscle that's doing this this and this and i don't know if they would really considered that as an option or, or something they could do but um I guess it's another exciting proposition. That it's just another area that we can start to look in as sensors yeah. like that develop and become possible. How My take on that is, too is much that, data
2: yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's not even uh, maybe I was going to say I was going to look at it from the perspective of we. I think w- our ability to. Um, to collect and maybe even analyze data is way ahead of our ability to know what to do with that information. And this is kind of like, I don't know, I've been I've been banging this drum for a long time, but even there's some really good sensors that are that are validated and that that give data that we think is reliable, but there's still not a really great understanding of what to do with it, even at, at a fairly basic level. Like some fairly basic sensors, like left, right power left, right balance on your power meter. There's still I'm not convinced that there's a really good good idea. Of what to do with that if there is an imbalance? Like, what, how do you fix it, or when do you fix it? When is it? A well, problem? Do you fix it? Do you, do you fix it? it? Exactly. Yeah, that's the first yeah. question. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it would be super cool to see. But yeah, you were when you were talking about body rocket. The thing, you know, the thing that oh, I'm always wondering now that I'm starting to do a little bit of field testing is why. You know, we'll we'll test one person with this you know innovation or this piece of kit or something and they'll be faster and another person will be slower and I'm like but why this doesn't make any sense if you know if we could start to answer some of those why
1: questions i would be i'd be super keen to to learn it's that whole measuring what matters but you need to start to figure out what matters and i think in this whole world we don't quite know yet and um it's a scattergun approach i think of okay we're going to measure all of this stuff and all of that stuff and all the other stuff and try and decode it and that was to go back to one of our trial runs of the hour record when we censored everything up was just, yeah, that scattergun approach, figuring out what does matter, what doesn't, what can you ignore, what do you actually focus your effort into. And yeah. on the error testing side, I think it's much the same. Okay, we know from just figuring out where energy goes to, elevation is a really tough problem, but that's just in answering faster or slower. But then it still, yeah, it comes back to the why, and yeah. other people are having other ideas. So, like VeloSense, they have a really cool. Don't know how much I can talk about it because again, under NDA, but um a really cool <laughs> head position sensor that okay. um is really critical part of okay, if something's faster and slower but the head position varied a huge amount, then that can be, go a good way to saying why. But it's not the total answer. And uh until we have this like full three D tracking pressure map, force moment, everything sensor, it's always gonna be why. But we need to figure out what the most important ones are and focusing on those, I think.
0: Well, it's almost turning into the the big data approach where you just collect everything and then use massive amounts of computer processing to determine causality. Um, Like it's it's such a... Sheer brute force. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think we're capable of comprehending it fully. No, but that's cool,
1: right? Because it means there's something you can get your teeth stuck into and focus in your area. Because if it was easy, then everyone would do it. Whereas I think it then rewards those who are keen to just crack on themselves and, and try and understand it.
2: Yeah, that's kind of, I think that's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good tagline for aero, the current state of aero testing right now. If it were easy, everyone would do it. And like, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's even, even the basic stuff. Like uh, I've been using a aero Tune a little bit with, uh, with folks here in around Toronto. And the, even, even given how plug and play, and I agree, like super good UI, um, super easy to execute. But even with that, there's still so many questions and so many variables to control. And it's still not easy.
1: It's not, but it, people are tackling the problem. Sebastian, especially, I, I do. I really like his UI UX. I think he's gone the right way about it. Of let's focus on that rather than worry about the sensor stuff, at least in the first instance. And he he does mm-hmm. a lot with very little. And okay, the next steps for him, and I think he's been pretty open that he's developing a, a sensor to go alongside that. But yeah. um, I'm quite excited for that because he's got the the database, the back end, the user experience, the interface—not nailed, but pretty damn good. And uh, then that's just that additional layer. He's got the icing and the cake coming. Sorry, the icing on the cake coming, and he's got the cake pretty well baked. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah, I'm
2: yeah. A, I'm a, Like I said, I'm a big fan of those guys too. They've been on the mm-hmm. show a couple of times, and uh, I chat with them on a, on a fairly regular basis. Both of those guys.
0: Well, I think a lot of the names that you mentioned earlier were were in quite close contact with all of them. So uh, Chris <laughs> Martin at Aerolab I know quite well, and then Sebastian and Pierre, and uh, they're they're all friends of ours very well the friends of yours Michael you you interact with them much more than I do but they're definitely friendlies and uh, very interesting people and it's great that it's such a good community to interact and, and collaborate and brainstorm with.
1: Yeah, it might be cool to get the VeloSense guys on. So John Buckley uh, and Barney, I think it is. I know John better. I used to work with him back in Formula One. And then he left to to do some consultancy stuff over in the States. And then out the blue, a few years ago, I spotted that he was running this cycling aerosensor company startup. Hmm. I was like... What a small world! <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, he's got some really cool patents, uh, and with how they measure airspeed speed in your angle, and perhaps the technology is applicable across anything, but they can measure like up to like 40, 50, 60 degrees of your without like barely any error. But it is quite a cool bit of tech when you look at it. It's kind of just flipped a Pitot inside out, uh, or your probe inside out. So you've got like a Venturi channel and a few more ports and stuff. It's it's pretty nifty. If you go online, and have a look at it, or have a chat with with them see so if they're keen to come on because yeah I think you've had most AeroSense companies like this <laughs> <it>, so maybe <laughs> more. get them
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure uh, that's that's a that's a really good tip we've uh, we've had um, somebody else mentioned VeloSense um, recommended that we get them on it was some time ago but yeah it's uh, we'll, we'll we'll reach out to them for sure thanks Dan. Uh, what do you think, guys? Good place to leave it. We're starting to like bump up against your schedules, and also our kind of you know we don't want to do a three-hour podcast kind of cap. <laughs> so, uh, good place to
1: wrap up. Sounds good to me. Um, okay, and I'll, I'll give you a nudge when the world hour records on the cards. Give yes, a, something on that.
2: And when that when that paper with all of your all
1: of your trade secrets <laughs> is out too. <laughs> all the little secrets. Well, that's on the the sports science nerds behind me, Medi and, and Johnny and Tiffa, to, to get writing that thing up. Nice, nice. I'm just the engineer, not the not the physiologist. <laughs> <laughs> Tying it all together. Um,
2: all right, folks. So uh, we're we've got, as always. There's, you know, we could we could probably uh, talk about this kind of stuff for for many many more minutes. And, and uh, in the interests of uh, of keeping these episodes at a at a reasonably manageable length. Uh, we're going to say thanks to Dan at this point and uh, hope he'll be willing to come back when he's uh, he's got more to report on, which is probably all the time. <laughs> and uh, as always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, if you learned something, uh, tell a friend, um, share it, give us a rating and a review on iTunes, and also consider supporting us on, um, on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks, everyone.
0: I've brought this up before watching like TT stages or things like that at the Giro or the Tour and you see these radios stuck on like basically the separation point or forcing a separation point on the back like the worst possible place you can have a radio and most of the riders do this and I don't get it. It just it's such a low-hanging fruit. It's ridiculous. It's like 10 watts to not what? have it on your back.
1: Uh, like individual TT speeds, we'll talk Yeah, those speeds. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. Oh. Like, I'm gonna throw ten watts away. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> no one has that many watts to throw away. <laughs>